Still, uh, we won't be in Luke 1 next week, but for now we are still in Luke 1. And Christmas is in two days, and I want to talk about Christmas for a minute. Now when I think of Christmas, I feel a strong kinship to one Christmas story character. Um, It's not a biblical character, but I feel a strong kinship uh, to a character that we typically associate with Christmas. Um, If I go too fast, Kate, this is going to spoil the joke. So don't let me skip ahead. Can you go one slide? One slide in. Uh, It's not Santa. I don't feel a strong kinship to Santa. Um, I understand some people get holly and jolly and a little bit rounder at Christmas time. Not me. Santa is growing his playoff beard out. Uh, or you might think uh, maybe, Kate, go one, one more. Uh, you might think this guy, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, celebrating Christmas. He's an outcast. He's a little atypical. You know, maybe Pastor Robert feels like that because he's a little atypical and he's a little weird. But no, I don't feel like Santa. I don't feel like Rudolph. In fact, I feel more closely related to this guy. Because we watched How the Grinch Stole Christmas a few nights ago. The original, the cartoon one, the good one. Um, we watched it with my kids. And let me tell you, I, I really get where he's coming from. As we watched How the Grinch Stole Christmas, I was just like, I really, I'm, I'm getting where he, I, I like this guy. <laughs> he strongly disliked And Dr. Seuss wrote, hated. He hated the Who's. Specifically over the noise and the bustle that they made over Christmas. If you watch it and you pay attention, in this, they follow a little bit more closely to the book, and he complains about the noise that the Who's makes and the the big commotion they make over Christmas. And I get that. I feel a strong similarity in my own heart towards the Christmas season. I really don't like Christmas cards. I don't like Christmas decorations. I don't like Christmas trees and I don't like ornaments. And I see some people being like, what is he talking about? I don't like gingerbread houses. I don't like fruitcake. I would not eat them here or there. I would not eat them anywhere. I don't like Frosty the Snowman. I don't like, I don't like Santa. In fact, I'm glad my kids are gone. Uh, I didn't want to do Santa for my kids. If anybody here still believes in Santa, sorry. I just ruined it for you. Uh, I didn't want to do Santa for my kids. I was like, Sarah, we can't, I was like, we're putting Santa, this guy who just magically shows up and leaves presents for the kids, and then we're going to tell him in 10 years, oh, by the way, he's not real, it's really been us the whole time. I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to put that out there as we're teaching and telling our kids something that we know is a lie, and then later coming back and saying, no. That was my argument. Sarah said, we have to do Santa. So we came to a compromise. We, we do Santa. <laughs> Which is how marriage works. <laughs> That's a different sermon, but... Uh, I don't like Christmas movies like Elf or White Christmas or Miracle on 34th Street. I watch them and I'm just like... <laughs> uh, I don't like Christmas music. I don't like 
Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Uh, a lot of my favorite stations are playing nothing but Christmas music. And I'll go from those to the classic rock stations. I actually was driving home, heard Christmas music on, and turned on ACDC instead. Thank you. Somebody is nodding. I like that. I don't like Christmas lights. This is just going to be persnickety today, isn't it? Kate, you're going to be clicking through them. One more, please. I don't like Christmas lights. I don't do this to my house. I don't think I've ever put up Christmas lights. And this is one perfect example of Christmas lights. These are actually really, like, that's a lot of work. And these Christmas lights show why I don't like all this stuff. I just went through all the things that I don't like about Christmas, and these lights, even though they are well done, even though it is a good representation of what people in America do at the Christmas season, I got one question to ask you about these Christmas lights that show why I don't like Christmas. Where's Jesus? You can look through there. You see snowmen. You see reindeer. You see Christmas trees, candy canes. I don't know what's going on in the middle there, but you just see a whole bunch of stuff. And that one simple question explains why I don't like the Christmas season. Because I really like Christmas, the holiday itself. The celebration of the birth of Jesus is a marvelous, wonderful holiday. The incarnation of the Son of God is a reason and cause for celebration over the entire world. Uh, But this drowns it out. It drowns out the purpose of Christmas. And C.S. Lewis actually wrote a short essay on this very topic. And he called it Xmas and Christmas in Britain. I'm simplifying it. You can look it up. It's actually an excellent read. If you Google it, uh, you'll find this article by C.S. a short essay by C.S. Lewis. I highly encourage everyone to read it. But he essentially argues, C.S. Lewis, a well-known, excellent Christian author, argues that there are two different holidays going on around Christmas time. On December 25th, we have two different holidays going on. And one he calls Xmas. It involves decorations. It involves presents. It involves a lot of work. An Xmas is a commercial enterprise designed to wear out people. The focus of Xmas is trying to give the best gifts, throw the best parties, give out cards and ornaments to every person. It is reciprocity-based. Somebody gives you a present, you feel obligated to give them a present. Somebody sends you a card, you feel obligated to give them a card. And it's all this I have to, I need to, I ought to do stuff that makes Xmas terrible. And he says it wears out people. It's entirely for show, and very few people actually enjoy Xmas. And most people are worn down for it weeks before and weeks after. A whole month of December is taken up by it. That's what he calls Xmas. And he actually calls Christmas the other holiday that goes on December 25th. And in this essay that he wrote, he makes it uh, an allegory. And he says, actually, some people think that Christmas is the reason we have Xmas. He says it involves some sort of religious celebration that no one really remembers. And that Christmas has been thoroughly buried by Xmas. But surprisingly, some people still do keep Christmas as it should be. And when I read this short essay by C.S. Lewis, it really hit close to my heart. 
because I saw, or I guess I read, more, eloqu- more eloquently than I could ever say what I feel deep in my heart. I don't like all the stuff that has grown up around Christmas, that's grown up around celebrating Jesus' birth. I don't like it almost as much as I don't like Sidney Crosby. But I want to get through... Sorry, Tom and I had a good discussion about. Sidney Crosby is a hockey player for the Pittsburgh Penguins that I don't like. (laughs) And that Tom just thinks is the cat's meow. He's like, he's a good, wholesome Canadian boy. And I was like, I don't like him. No more jokes for just one person, because Patty's going to make that face of, what is he talking about? (laughs) Sidney Crosby, is he like a Christmas singer? No, that's Bing Crosby. (laughs) Don't like him either? Oh... (laughs) I actually do appreciate the back and forth. It's good. It's fun. But I, want, I don't like all the stuff that's grown up around celebrating Jesus' birth. I really don't. I want to get through all the extra, all the distraction, and instead focus on Jesus. And that's what we're going to do here this morning. I'm not going to talk about why everybody should have a Christmas tree or why we should all sing Christmas carols that are, or Christmas songs. I'm going to talk about Jesus. And in Luke 1, we're in verse... Start off in verse 46. And this passage of scripture, is my clicker just straight up broken? Thank you, Kate. You have my notes, right? You can follow along? Okay, thank you. Uh, This is called the Magnificat. I put this as the title of the sermon, and Mary Jo came back to me, our lady who does the bulletins. She's like, did you spell something wrong? I'm like, no, no, no. This is Latin. This is a Latin phrase which means magnify. And it's the first word here in this passage in the Latin Vulgate of the Bible. Now, Mary didn't speak Latin. She spoke probably Aramaic or Hebrew. Uh, But since the Latin version of the Bible was used for like 1,700 years, uh, the Magnificat stuck as the name of this. And this saying of Mary is kind of like a hymn, and it's her response to Elizabeth. When you look at this passage, Mary is responding to what Elizabeth says about her pregnancy. Elizabeth spoke out under the leading of the Holy Spirit, and it's likely that Mary did so as well. Uh, So let me approach this passage backwards, dealing with the last verse first. Because um, I actually wrote this sermon in order, dealing with each verse, basically like a commentary on the passage. And when I got to verse 56, verse 56 actually is so disjointed from the rest of the passage that I was like, I got to treat this later. I got to treat this, this later passage first because the rest of this is so serious and so important and so weighty and everything I have to say about verse 56 is basically one big joke. So let's do verse 56 first. Verse 56, um, Mary remained with her, meaning Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Now, if you can do some math, if Mary shows up when Elizabeth is six months pregnant and then stays with Elizabeth for about three more months, what's she going to be there for? John's birth. Now, baby, baby deliveries in ancient times weren't something that you went to the hospital for. You actually stayed at home and you had your baby at home. And you had other women who had given birth help you. Sort of like a midwife system. But basically just with female family members. So Mary, who is pregnant, gets to experience childbirth with her relatives. Now we're assuming Mary is a teenage girl. Probably somewhere between 16 and I want to say 22. 
So late teens, early 20s. And she is pregnant with her first baby. She's an unwed teenage mother. So she's in this seeing what's going to happen to her in six months. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around ladies giving birth. It's not ever easy or simple or quiet or just like, oh, look, here's the baby. (laughs) There is crying and screaming and all sorts of different bodily fluids involved. And she, Mary gets to see all this and gets to see what's coming for her. And actually, when Mary gives birth, who else does she have to help her? Just Joseph. I, I was there for the birth of all my kids, and let me tell you, I couldn't have done any of those. <laughs> I'd have been like, all right, where's my baseball glove? We're going to do this. Uh, but Mary is a teenager, and she's getting prepared for the childbirth that will soon come for her. And this has to be better. This, having female family members around, because the way we do births is way different. You go off in a room, it's you, a nurse, a doctor, and maybe your husband, sequestered off from everyone else. Here it's, she is giving birth in her house with her female family members around. This has to be better than any wait until marriage talk you could give your kids. Be like, you see this? This is what's going to happen if you don't wait. And they have to be going, okay, yeah, that's, I'm I'm good. (laughs) I'm going to hold off. If you want this to happen to you, then don't do it. But that's basically all I have to say about this passage is that Mary was there for the birth of John the Baptist, which had to be pretty cool, but also pretty terrifying knowing that that too was coming for you. And Mary starts off this passage. Time to get serious. Mary starts off this passage by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. And we use the word magnify uh, pretty frequently in English. What's something we use to magnify? Magnifying glass. Most common usage of the word magnify. What does a magnifying glass do? Burns ants. But it also (laughs) makes small things bigger. And here Mary is doing the same thing. She's saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. Not that she's saying God is small and she's making him big. Like she's the one to make God famous or whatever. But she's saying that her understanding of God was small. My, I thought I knew God. I thought I had some grasp of him. But I had a small picture of what God was like. And now it's getting bigger. God is getting way bigger, way more important, way more powerful. Because she probably thought she knew something about God. Yeah, God, I know that guy. I get it. But now she sees how much God is doing in her life. And in the life of her people the nation of Israel, for all the Jewish people. And she says, wow, God is so much bigger. God is so much greater. God is so much more wonderful than I could ever understand. God really loves us. God really cares about us. He is really awesomely amazing. And for each of us here, this idea of magnifying our picture of God, of God getting bigger and God getting greater than we think he is, should be our continual experience of God. We think we know God. We think we got a pretty good handle on him. We think we have him figured out. But then he acts in our lives and does something profound, reveals more of himself to us. And we say, man, I had no idea how great God was. He loves me more than I ever, would, more than I ever thought he did. He's doing so much good in my life. 
And the cool thing about this is, as we understand God more, we can literally never stop understanding God. God is infinite. So as we understand God better, it just keeps, every time we just, he keeps getting bigger and more awesome and more amazing and it just will never stop. We will continually be experiencing more of the love and grace and power of God for the rest of our existence. Until you die and go to heaven and then Jesus comes back, you get your body and your soul back together and then you go on through the rest of eternity continually saying, I understand more of God's power, more of God's wisdom, more of God's strength for the rest of eternity. God will never be, you'll never get to the end and be like, okay, yeah, I got to, that's the, I understand all of God's majesty. You will never get to the end of it. You'll always find new ways of how much he loves you and how much good he was doing in your life and how kind he has been to you. That's awesome. For eternity, we will say, my soul magnifies the Lord. And with that magnification of God, Mary also rejoices in God, her Savior. And I don't always think we find the joy in our faith that we should. Our faith, our Christianity, should be joyful. It should, on some level, make you happy. It's not rules. It's not coming to church on Sunday. It's not, okay, I have to give 10%. It's not, I have to read my Bible. It should make you joyful because you are encountering an infinitely loving, infinitely kind, infinitely joyful entity called God. I can't tell you how many unbelievers that I've talked to who always bring up the cold, sour, religious people that are followers of Jesus. What a horrible testimony to have a church full of grumpy faces. And sadly, I think they're correct to a point to point them out as a problem. Because why would anyone want to join a faith that is going to make you miserable? I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to come to a church that I thought was going to make me miserable. Which is why I like being here, because you guys don't make me miserable. You laugh at my jokes, you laugh at me, it's good. God doesn't want to make us miserable. Why would he want to make his own creation miserable? Why would he want to make us sour and grumpy? He doesn't want to make us sour and grumpy. He wants to make us joyful, infinitely joyful. More joyful, in fact, than before we came to follow Christ. In fact, he wants us to rejoice always. This is a command in the Bible. God wants you to always be rejoicing. Even when I'm stuck in traffic, even when you're stuck in traffic, even when my business is doing poorly, even when your business, even when I'm arguing with my wife, my mom, my dad, my siblings, my kids, even then, And he wants us to be a source of joy for other people too. He wants to be our source of joy and he wants us to be joyful with other people. It should be a testimony that people come and say, man, you are always happy and I don't know why. If all God's goodness, love, patience, forgiveness doesn't make you joyful, then I think you might not understand all that God's done for you. 
And Mary lays out all the reasons she rejoices in God from verses 48 to 55. In fact, the large majority of this passage is just commentary on why Mary uh, magnifies the Lord and why she rejoices. Because look, it says, For he has, uh, be all old generations will call me blessed, for he it is who has done mighty things. And it just she goes on for the next verses and verses and verses of all the wonderful things God's done. And for all these reasons, for all that God is, this is why I magnify him. This is why I'm making him great. So let's take a minute and look at all the things Mary says. And the first thing she notes is that God has looked on her humble estate. Verse 48. I actually thought about this this week. Do you guys want me to put the Bible verses in front of them? Like the, the number 48 and 49? Or is this okay like this? You care? One way or another? Fine? Okay. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God has looked on his servant's humble estate. And this is a reason that's special to Mary, specifically to her. She's basically saying that without God's favor, I'm no one special. I wasn't the smartest, I wasn't the prettiest, or the strongest, or the richest, or the wisest. I was nobody until God chose me to use me for his work. And as a result, all future generations will call me blessed, which she definitely is. Think about all the stuff that Mary got to see firsthand. She got to live the Bible. Like we read stories about it now and we're like, man, that would have been so cool. Mary got to live that. She got to listen to Jesus preach. She got to see him perform miracles. She was a witness to both the crucifixion and the resurrection. To see someone die a painful and horrible death and then on Sunday be like, hey, he's back and he looks fine. (laughs) That's awesome. How blessed, how much would you pay to see the crucifixion and resurrection? All I have. But above and beyond that, she got to see Jesus' early years. We don't find out a lot about Jesus' early years. We have just like these tiny little snippets. Jesus running away from his parents to go talk to the, you know, the priests in the temple and show them up. Like that's, that's like literally the only story from Jesus' childhood we have. Is he stayed behind to argue with the seminary professors. <laughs> but she got to see Jesus grow up. She got to carry him in her womb. She had angels visit her. How awesome is that? She saw firsthand, firsthand elevate events which are celebrated worldwide. She lived them. She was, yeah, it would be awesome. She's a primary character in the life of Jesus and the Bible. And if that's not God giving favor to someone of low estate, if that's not a blessed life, I don't know what is. And she goes on in verse 49 to say, God has done great things for me. And like we know that, we're like, well, of course she has. But the thing is, is she doesn't know even half of it yet. Think about all Mary knows at this point. She knows she's carrying the Son of God. And that's pretty much it. (laughs) All of Jesus' life is yet future. But she can tell God's up to something big. And God's done great things for Mary and he won't stop now. And she goes on to say, holy is his name. And this is the switch in the passage. The previous reasons were for what Mary has, uh, God's done in Mary's life. You know, he's, 
He looked on me from humble estate. All generations will call me blessed. But now she's going to like, see a bigger picture of this, what God has done for his people, the Jews, and for everyone. And God's holiness is actually a big deal. The Bible repeatedly calls God holy. There are literally angels that are standing around God's throne that do nothing but cry out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, verses 2 to 3. Isaiah sees God in the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings covering their face, uh, their eyes, or their feet, and then was flying with two. And they called out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. God's holiness is his moral perfection. God is the epitome of moral righteousness and perfection. But it is also his otherness. Because holy means set apart. And God is set apart from all of creation. Think about that for a moment. Everything that you have experienced in your life is part of creation. Except God. All day long, you get in your car, you sleep in your bed, you eat food, you go to the bathroom, you wash your hands. All that is part of creation. God is the only thing that you can encounter that is not part of creation. He is completely separate from his creation. He is holy. He is holy other. He is completely different from us, yet he still condescends to be with us, his people. And that's a reason for praise. That's a reason for rejoicing. And Mary talks about God's mercy in verse 50, uh, being for future generations. Kate, if we go to the next slide, please. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And this is uh, the potential for generational blessings on families. Not just you, but your kids and your kids' kids. God is big on families. I don't know if you noticed that reading through the Bible. God is big on families. He consistently works in fathers and sons. Look in Genesis. It's a family line. Look in the New Testament. Peter and Andrew, brothers. Jacob and John, or James and John, as some people call them, brothers. Jesus' brother actually became an apostle. Jesus' half-brother, James, or Jacob, became an apostle. And in fact, the family is the first and fundamental unit of the church. God wants us to model and to pass on our faith to our kids. I talked about this a lot last week. But he wants us to pass it on to our kids so that they can pass it on to their kids and it can be a generational thing. But again, this is a whole other sermon. We can deal with it later. Verse 51. Mary then notes that God shows strength to his people. And it's shown strength in his arm. Um, And how do you show strength with your arms? Uh, Flex your muscles? Not unless you're Arnold, nobody's going to be impressed. I'm not going to be up here and you guys are going to go, oh, Uh, your strength is shown by by your execution, meaning meaning God is doing something. It's a metaphor for God striking the wicked. What's God doing with his strength? Mary explains. God has scattered the proud in their thoughts. And I think that's really important because if anybody's proud, they're never proud except in here. Pride is an entirely internal state of existence. You can only think that you're better than other people because you're not. In God's eyes, all people, same page. 
You're not actually any better, and God will correct that. And a good test to see if you're proud is, let me ask you this question. How much do proud people bother you? When people have to shove in and share their opinion, you're talking about something and somebody comes along, yeah, I was just thinking about that the other day and I wanted to say, uh, and you're like, will you shut up? I was talking. (laughs) Or when people take credit for something they didn't do, that bother anybody? (laughs) Or when they shove their accomplishments in your face, hello, I have a PhD. Oh, you call somebody something, actually it's doctor something and you're like, oh my goodness. If that bothers you, the more it bothers you, the more pride you have. It should bother you. But if it makes you like livid with rage and you turn into the Hulk, then you might have a pride problem. (laughs) But God brings down the proud and he also brings down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 52. And (laughs) all those who are mighty have thrones. Some are real. Some thrones are in Buckingham Palace or in the White House. Some thrones are CEO chairs at Enron. Some thrones are the position of running for the, being the running back for the Buffalo Bills in the 70s. But from whatever throne someone is on, God will bring them down for, from it. God brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those who are humble. Everybody who is, thinks they are something, God's got to bring them down. But with that, all those who are humble, God brings them up. Because those who humble themselves have a special place in God's heart. Anyone who humbles themselves before God and before people will be exalted by God. Because that's the type of person who should be exalted. I have a big, I'm going off my notes here, I have a big problem with people listening to sports figures. Listening to somebody who plays basketball or who throws a football, tell them who to vote for or what they should buy. I'm like, I'm not going to go vote for somebody because LeBron James tells me to. I'm not going to go buy direct energy because Troy Aikman thinks I should. What does he know? He can throw a football. He can put a ball in a hoop. Whoop-de-doo. What does that have anything else to do with anything else? Those, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, I have a completely different issue with sports. You're like, man, he doesn't like Christmas or sports? I'm like, no, I- What does he do? What does he like? We'll get to that later. I I like Jesus. Big fan of him. The type of person that should be exalted is someone who has humbled themselves before God and before other people. Why? Because they won't let being exalted go to their heads. They know that God is the one who lifts them up. God lifts up people and God brings down people. And it's only by God's strength and God's mercy that anyone is ever exalted. John the Baptist, one of those guys that should be exalted because he said, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. And God's like, I can work with that guy (laughs) because he's not going to let the popularity go to his head. And if you look at the apostles, you see a lesson being learned by them of humility and submission to God. And God finally, I think, gets them to the point where he's like, they're starting to get it. And that's what God wants for us too. He wants us to humble ourselves. He doesn't want us to be proud and puffed up and think, oh, I make a lot of money. I'm so great. Oh, I got this important position or I'm a pastor at a church. I'm so great. God's like, no. 
I want you to be humble before other people, before me, and say, God, I'm not even, I'm not worthy to untie your shoes. I'm not even worthy to be here. But thank you for picking me. In addition with that, God feeds the hungry, verse 53. The rich he sends away empty. This is another one of those God flips. He brings up the humble, brings down the proud. He takes those who are rich only in this life and shows them how poor that they really are. This morning, my kids were up early and they watched the, the Mickey Christmas Carol, you know, where Scrooge is played by Scrooge McDuck and he encounters the ghost of Christmas past, present. I watched that and that, that hit me here. He realized, Scrooge realizes, and this is one of those things about Christmas I do like that we'll come back to, that being rich in this life isn't that great. You can't take it with you. One of the lines that I like from that is, um, he asks, whose tombstone is this? And he says, it's yours, the richest man in the cemetery. That that was when Disney made good stuff. (laughs) Instead of Moana, (laughs) which my kids love. I like stuff with, with uh, moral teaching in it, let's just say. God brings down the rich and lifts up the poor. Those who are rich only in this life. It's not a problem to have money. There is no problem with being rich. The problem is with being rich only in this life. If all you have is a million dollars in the bank... God says, <laughs> you're missing out. The rich are sent away hungry and the poor are fed. Over and over in the Bible, we see God flipping on its head our ideas of what's normal. Oh, that person's rich. We look at like Bill Gates and the CEO of Amazon, like they have so many billions of dollars. Oh, that must be so great. Not if you don't have Jesus. Jesus. God flips over and over again our idea of normal. What is important to God is typically ignored by people. What is unseen is eternal. Wait, how, how is something that I can't see eternal? Well, something that I see is temporary and transigent, tra- like transient. We, we build our lives around stuff that we see. God, I'm trying to buy a house. I'm trying to get a better car. I want to have all this stuff. And God's like, that's all temporary. But the stuff that you can't see is eternal. Kindness is eternal. Joy is eternal. Love for your friends and your family, that's eternal. And we're like, that just sounds like a Hallmark movie. And God's like, yeah. We get so inundated with life and all the trappings with life and all the stuff around us that we tune out God. And we need God to come in regularly and remind us that life isn't about power or money or fame. It doesn't matter who wins the Super Bowl or who's elected president. Ultimately, it boils down to who's following God and who's not following God and getting more people to follow him than are, than were before. Life is about submitting to God and following him. And in his mercy, God helps people, verse 54 to 55. And throughout the Bible, God only ever intervenes because of his love and his mercy. He really does love us. And God wants to interact with us which is why he sent Jesus to live among us out of his love and out of his mercy. 
in his life and in his ministry. And if you think about it for a moment, if you have your Bible open, you can look at Jesus's life and ministry and everything Mary says Jesus does. Everything Mary says Jesus does. Jesus looks on and associates with those of humble estate. Jesus did great things in his ministry. He healed people. He raised the dead. He multiplied food. Jesus manifested the holiness of God. Jesus never sinned. Jesus showed the mercy of God by dying on the cross for our sins. He showed that God is stronger than the forces of the enemy. He brought low the proud and exalted the humble. He took Pharisees and said, you guys are missing the point. He took fishermen and tax collectors who nobody liked and said, I'm going to use you guys. He filled the hungry, but sent away those who were already full. He helped helped God's people and brought more people into the fold. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he does everything Mary says that God does. And he shows us what God is like even before he was born. And I know I started this sermon with what I hated about Christmas. Trees, setting up trees, hanging ornaments on trees. Not a big fan. Decorations, lights, secular songs, gingerbread houses. Not a big fan. But I want to end this sermon with what I love about Christmas. What do I love about Christmas? This. Paintings of very white people pretending to be Middle Eastern. Spoiler alert, you're going to get to heaven and if you think Jesus is like six foot two, blonde hair, blue eyes, you're going to be like, hey, short guy, where's Jesus at? And Jesus is going to be like, he can take a joke. If I'm struck dead while I'm up here, then you'll know otherwise. But I love celebrating the birth of the Messiah. God in the flesh, Jesus. I love celebrating Christmas because Jesus was born. I love singing about it. I love Christmas carols, okay? I don't like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or singing about Santa or Jingle Bells or any of that baloney. I love Christmas carols. Come, let us adore him. I sing that in June because I like it because it's awesome. The first Noel, born as the king of Israel. That's awesome. I love singing those songs. I love talking about it and sharing the great gift of Christmas with other people. Hey, do you know why Christmas is here? Because Jesus is born. That's why it's here. I love the love I feel from God, knowing that he became a man like me and that he loved me enough to be born in a stable and live a humble life. And I love that Christmas shows us how strong God is. God is stronger than the power of the enemy. He's stronger than the mightiest of men. God shows his strength at Christmas. And I love that Christmas reminds us that God fills our hearts and our lives with good things. If I never got another present on Christmas, I'd be fine because I already got the best one. That too. Christmas shows us God's great love for us. And that is worth celebrating. I love Christmas. And I love that, loves, I love that Christmas shows us that God is good all the time. And that all the time, God is good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being born so many years ago. God, you are good. We love you. 
Thank you for humbling yourself to be born just like any of us.